Welcome to the Gunplot podcast from RTE's Documentary on One. This is the fourth of our four extra episodes. This recording is of Neil McCarthy. He was the senior counsel for former Minister for Finance, Charles Hahi. The case for the defence was closed and Neil McCarthy was making his closing submission to the jury. Historian Michael Heaney frames the recording for us. This is a rare piece of tape, really, because Neil McCarthy was the great star of the law library at the time. He went on to become a judge of the Supreme Court and was probably the most brilliant judge on that Supreme Court until his unfortunate early demise in a car accident with his wife several years later while he was on the bench. And here we have his presentation at the end of Hawhey's evidence, making the case for the innocence of his client. It's curiously understated that McCarthy doesn't, there isn't a great flamboyance about the delivery here. Everything is quite precise and polite. There's no great exuberance or over-the-top presentation to the jury. It's very calm, very, very deliberate and uh, very comprehensive and, of course, ultimately very successful. Gentlemen, you will now be addressed by Mr McCarthy on behalf of Mr Hoy. McCarthy. Gentlemen, the fact that the evidence is over means, as far as I'm concerned, the end of the in sight. It's by no means going to conclude today or indeed tomorrow. But the end of this long, much publicised, at times dramatic and emotional, and at times wearying prosecution is in sight. It's a prosecution which, in the submission that I will make to you, ought never to have seen the light of day. It's one which was uh, brought in an atmosphere charged with undertones of different kinds and in an atmosphere which at times perhaps makes it difficult as indeed you were told by the judge at the start of the case, not to allow extraneous factors to enter into your deliberations. But it's a prosecution which has been brought, a prosecution which I, you having heard, I suppose most of the relevant facts, might well conclude, I suggest to you, properly conclude, that it is one conceived in panic, nurtured in rumour, malice, and born in confusion and spite. That this has been demonstrated in a particular way in regard to the calling of evidence at this trial. You heard the evidence Indeed, Mr. Maguire adverted to this last Friday, of Colonel Michael Heffer, called after some debate by the judge, thus enabling both the state and the several defendants' counsel to cross-examine. Colonel Hefferon, as you know, was called as a witness of the first and abortive trial. For some reason, the nature of which has not been and presumably will not be disclosed to you because no evidence was led about it. For some reason, the prosecution declined to call him as a witness at the second trial. Gentlemen, it's not for me to lay down what the duty of a prosecution is. By the prosecution, I don't mean any individual counsel, I mean the whole apparatus of state uh, which organises the prosecution and for which you and I have the privilege of paying. It was a judge who was particularly concerned with the earlier decisions of our courts from the foundation of the of Sir Erdem in 1922. It was a judge who was particularly distinguished in the number of what I might call principles that he laid down, who laid down <coughs> this principle that I'm going to quote to you. It is not contested 
and may be accepted as settled law that the prosecutor in a criminal charge is not in the position of counsel appearing for a litigant in proceedings inter partes and that it is his duty to put the entire facts and evidence before the court or jury, even though some of that evidence may be prejudicial to the case for the prosecution. Consistently with this general proposition, a wide discretion must be allowed to the prosecutor as to what evidence he considers material. It is difficult to see how an error in the exercise of this discretion, which should be exercised fairly and honestly and in the interests of justice, can seriously prejudice an accused person, inasmuch as the prosecutor, in cases where depositions have been taken, is generally bound to produce all witnesses who have made depositions. And in every case, is bound, so far as he can, to produce for the purposes of the defense any witnesses whom the accused requires for this purpose. It is unnecessary to consider what is the duty of a prosecutor when he has in his possession evidence which he believes to be false, as no such question arises in this case. That was a case of the nature of which doesn't matter. But I charge prosecution here, gentlemen, and I want there to be no room for doubt about it, that it has unfairly and to the prejudice of the accused, and in particular that Captain Kelly, refused to call as a witness a man who could give material and relevant evidence. And having seen him called, cross-examined him in no way to suggest that he had made some other statement that was false, that he was in some way not a truthful witness. Far from it. They have attempted to cross-examine Captain Kelly on the basis that where his evidence differed from that of Colonel Hefferon, that Colonel Hefferon was right. In one instance, and in one instance only, I think was it suggested to Colonel Hefferon that he was saying something different from what he had said on another occasion. And that was when he was asked, did he tell the minister who the consignee was? Or did he know who the consignee was? And he said he interpreted consignee as the person to whom it was being consigned, not the place. He said he did tell the minister the place, but he naturally, he said he didn't tell him the consignee, and it was found there was no disparity. Now, gentlemen, these are not easy things to get across to laymen. They loom large with lawyers when we're uh, dealing with different types of cases as to what people, why people are evident, are witnesses of credit, why they should be called as witnesses. But the one factor underlying the conduct of a prosecution, whoever is directed, the one factor underlying it, it is the duty of the prosecution, who have all the facilities, who have all the knowledge, who have all the money, that they should produce to a jury all relevant evidence. Colonel Hefferon was plainly relevant. A prosecutor may, in his discretion, or the prosecution may, in its discretion, consider it proper if a witness is plainly unreliable not to call. It's not now that his evidence is going to be against the prosecution case. That's not a reason for not calling him. The reason given is that if he's plainly unreliable. You gentlemen have seen both Colonel Hefferon and Mr. Gibbons, in respect of whose evidence, of course, Colonel Hefferon is highly material. You've seen them both give evidence. Colonel Hefferon is a man who has given service to the National Army for, I think, 38 years. He attained high rank. He attained a particularly confidential position. He occupied a position of high dignity at one time as aide-de-camp to President O'Kelly and reached pretty well the peak of achievement that a person can hope to do, sub <coughs> subject to that of chief of staff, by the rank of colonel and the director of intelligence. He was subject to an oath of loyalty to his country, fealty to the constitution. He would strike one, I suggest, as a witness who answered questions he was asked and answered them directly. I invite you to compare him to your recollection of the manner in which Mr. Gibbons, who one might call his contestant, answered the questions he was asked. So I'm going to read you some sections of that evidence. 
And I invite you to conclude that Colonel Heffron is a witness of truth and reliability. Who knew what had happened, who told you what had happened, and who told his minister what had happened. I invite you to conclude that Mr. Gibbons is not a witness of truth and reliability. If you do, then you will, I suggest, consider why was Colonel Heffron not called as a witness. And I invite you to conclude the reason was that having heard him give evidence in the first trial, and having heard Mr. Gibbons give evidence in the first trial, somebody decided that Heffron would be sacrificed so that Gibbons might be saved. Do you think that's a fair conclusion? If you do, it would perhaps tend to make one look askance at the prosecution as a whole, and particularly at the witnesses who are most directly concerned, who are most implicated, who are perhaps most responsible for the prosecution. One might look with some doubt about them. This goes far beyond the duty that you will have, gentlemen, of examining evidence naturally, but of course of giving the benefit of any reasonable doubt that you have to each and all of the accused. But when you come to determine, as you will have to in your own minds perhaps, to some degree anyway, determine the truth or accuracy of somebody's recollection of a particular act, of a particular conversation, of a particular idea, I invite you to bear in mind that the atmosphere that lies under or behind this prosecution seems to be one of unfairness. Now, we don't ask for any special grace. We merely ask and say that we have not received the fairness in con the conduct of a prosecution that every citizen is entitled to have. This is no reflection on any particular individual. The reflection is intended on those responsible for the bringing and pursuing of this prosecution and the manner in which it has been pursued at this second trial. If you think these comments are fair, gentlemen, bear them in mind in your approach. If you think they're unfair, discover them. But I suggest to you that that one factor, the failure to call Colonel Heffron, is something that marks this prosecution as something bordering on being a persecution. It didn't end there. Again, it's not easy to get it across to laymen the significance that one attaches to particular things. When the evidence was being going on one day, we had a the almost sort of absurd situation that the prosecution were not prepared to go on with evidence until they called uh, Mr. O'Moran, the former Minister for Justice. Mr. O'Moran's evidence was entirely technical. It, was, it could have been given by any clerk out of the department, out of his department, <coughs> when he had been a minister, to say that he had never given a license to any of these defendants or to certain named companies. Never a license to import arms. That's what his evidence was. That evidence had to be brought in at a particular stage. At what particular stage, gentlemen? At the stage before Mr. Gibbons gave evidence. They didn't want Gibbons contradicted again, just in case somebody might ask Mr. O'Moran some question or other that might affect Mr. Gibbons' credibility. That's the reason for it, gentlemen. I suggest to you that that's an unfair tactic on the part of the prosecution. We can't stop them doing it. A matter entirely for the judge and who would normally act in accordance with the request of the prosecution. But that, I suggest, was the reason, because until the cross-examination of Mr. Moran started, his evidence was entirely technical and not in dispute that he had never given a license. No one suggested he ever had. But it was other questions that he, they were afraid he might be asked which would implicate Mr. Gibbons. I suggest that chapter was an unfair tactic in the prosecution and is another mark of the unfairness that has been shown. Now, reference was made 
I bring this out of context, perhaps, but because it bears somewhere in the same way. On the evidence of Mr. Berry, one particular aspect of it, and the evidence of Deputy Commissioner Lincoln. Mr. Berry was asked a series of questions by Mr. Saruman about the operations of the Special Branch in Northern Ireland. And quite correctly, in respect of each question, he was categorical and clear that the Special Branch had never operated in Northern Ireland. Out of pure, and so also, uh, Mr. Lincoln. It appears uh, that the guardian, or special guardian, who particularly chosen for their connection with Northern Ireland, were sent in to get reports, called them intelligence reports, or whatever you like. But they were sent in, and they were brought to the, eventually to the government. This was a decision of the Minister for Justice, passed through Mr. Berry to Commissioner Lincoln. I would have thought that a public servant, not a public master, but a public servant, would, when asked about one branch of the force which is part of his department, the Garda Shea when asked if one branch of it had gone to the north and made reports, and knowing that another branch of it had gone to the north and made reports, would not have confined his answer to saying, no, the special branch didn't go, but that he would have been forthcoming with the information, which obviously was being sought. It didn't matter whether it was the special branch or not. What mattered was that reports were being got about conditions in the north. Now, I suggest that's part of the trait that seems to mark this unfortunate prosecution, part of the attitude of mind of those primarily concerned with it. If you think I'm right in saying that, it might tend to make you look on the prosecution and on the evidence alleged to be in support of it, look uh, somewhat askance at it and certainly look with a very doubting eye and a doubt here with a doubting ear. These are the marks that I suggest indicate that this prosecution is a somewhat artificial one. It's a charge of conspiracy to import arms illegally. If these arms had ever been imported, perhaps the prosecution would have been brought for importing them illegally. An offence that could have been tried in the district court. We have had about 10 days already here in this trial. The atmosphere of the High Court, all the different sort of atmosphere that it is, it could also have been tried on indictment, but it could have been tried in the district court. The conspiracy, as it is alleged, is an agreement to do an unlawful act. That's the definition of conspiracy from a legal point of view. I should pause to say that insofar as I make any observations about the law, and I will have to do some, I do so subject to what the judge will say to you at the end, and you will, of course, accept the law from him, not from me. If I am wrong, he set me right. <coughs> I have spoken about this manner of conduct of the prosecution and the institution of it. But I feel that perhaps it were better done, or it ha has been better done, perhaps more briefly done, on last Wednesday, when John Kelly made an unsworn statement. Because those of us who are privileged to hear will long remember. I might quote you what he, in effect, said about this prosecution. And it is my conviction, whether I be right or whether I be wrong, I only speak from the knowledge that I have, it is my conviction that what Mr. McKenna said in the beginning, that this trial was an exercise in democracy, or a case of the people of Ireland versus the accused, and many things have been done in the name of the people of Ireland, it is my conviction that I stand here, and those who stand with me, 
that we are here as a matter of political expediency and not from any desire that the course of justice be impartially administered. It is no reflection on the courts of justice that prosecutions are brought which ought never to have been brought. It is no reflection on the courts of justice that a case has to be heard at length juries who are, as you are now, ministers of justice or judges in the case. No reflection on any of these that such has to happen. The reflection is on those who make them happen, whoever they may be. I should point out to you, gentlemen, that the conduct of criminal trials lies in the hands of the Attorney General under an article of the Constitution. He is the person bound to conduct them. Criminal trials are brought by the people at the suit of the Attorney General. He is the only one who can get, have an indictable crime tried in the High Court in, as the Central Criminal Court, that is. <coughs> but that does not mean that other people may at times seek to uh, bonafide, perhaps at times, seek to influence the bringing or the maintenance of a prosecution. Uh, as I said, gentlemen, I said I'd quote you some of the evidence given by Mr. Gibbons. I do so now, somewhat out of context in what I'm going to say, but because I think uh, I, I want to highlight some of the observations that you made. In cross-examination, in regard to the training of Fort Dundee, perhaps if anyone wants to get the particular reference, it was on the 9th of October in the afternoon. apropos a demand by representatives of the defence committees for training. Was that a demand in October or around again or October of 1969? I, and so I should have thought it was earlier. Even earlier, September? Yes. Was that demand in fact met? Yes, to some degree. Could I ask you to go back over your question again? A demand for arms? No, the demand is for training. Training, yes. It was met to some degree, you say. Was it met by the process of enrolling citizens from Delhi in the FCA and giving them a week's training at a fort in Donegal? That's right. As far as you were aware at that time, were the persons who were so trained members of what were called the defence committees in Delhi? They were Delhi citizens, bogsiders. Yes. And was their training arranged by the persons who formed the defence committees in Delhi? And so, as I understood it, certain selected people who presented themselves had requested training. They were informed that in order to get this training, they would have to enroll in the defence forces, which they really did, and they got the training that they requested. As far as I can recall, their number was nine. When you say enroll in the defence forces, does this mean that they were immediately enrolled in the FCA? Yes. And immediately given the training? Yes. And went back to Derry again? Yes. Is it correct to say that that was intended to continue, but was stopped by means of newspaper publicity? No. The Taoiseach at that time was on leave. And I sanctioned this training on my own initiative, and on his return I acquainted him of the fact, and the Taoiseach advised that this should be discontinued, and it was. The FCA, I think, exists, Mr. Gibbons, as a local defence force as far as the Republic of Ireland is concerned. Yes, this is a rough definition. It's not a rough definition, gentlemen, it's the exact English translation. A rough definition, I'm not trying to be precise. Yes, the intention of it is, I take it, if you will agree with me, to provide in each area of the country opportunities for persons to become trained in the use of arms and in military matters, so that they might subsequently be available as a reserve force if you ever had to expand the defence force. Yes, it is a part-time occupation. It isn't, of course, nobody comes into it on a full-time basis. No. I take it you would agree with me, Mr Gibbons, it is not intended for the purpose of training people living outside the, the Republic of Ireland. Not strictly speaking. And do you agree with me 
that the enrolment of the citizens of Delhi on your order on September 1969 into the FCA for the purpose of giving them training in Fort Dunree was an unorthodox method of achieving what you thought was a proper objective. Yes. And it was making use of the defence forces so as to assist a minority in Delhi to be in a position to defend themselves. Yes. And you thought that a proper, that a proper action to take at that time, at that time of serious stress and strain. The purpose of the training was training in the use of weapons. Answer. The nature of the training was to be determined by the army, but I imagine it would have an application to the conditions in which the bogsiders found themselves. Look, at, let's not fence with words. Did you think these men were going to be trained to use guns? Or what did you think they were going to be trained to do? I presumed that they would be elementary training in the use of weapons. In other words, they were going to be trained to whatever extent in the use of guns. Yes. Did you make any inquiry or have any information available to you at that time as to what guns they had when they went back to Derry? I'm quite certain that they had no weapon that was properly an Irish army weapon or for that matter any other weapon. I think you are misunderstanding the purpose of my question and possibly the question itself. Did you make any inquiry or had you any information as to what guns were available to these people after they'd been trained when they went back to Derry? No. Did you give any consideration to that question? From what I could gather, and from what had previously happened in Derry up to that time, the paucity of guns in the area being defended was self-evident. So they had practically no guns. That would appear to be the case. And that was clear in September of 1969, yes. And would you agree with me, Mr. Gibbons, that it was pointless to train these men in the use of guns unless they were going to get guns? No. I would not agree with you in that. I, what was the point of training them, the use of, training them in the use of guns if they were not going to get guns? I would think that my chief motivation in this gesture would be to convey to them that their dire straits were perceived by us and were sympathised with by us. Now, gentlemen, what sort of an answer is that? Here is a group of men, nine I think in number, trained for one week, and another group due to come the next week, and presumably more and more groups due to come. For what? To show their sympathy of the Irish government for them in their plight in the box. And this particular showing of sympathy was, according to Mr. Gibbons, stopped by the Taoiseach's intervention. And according to Curtin, Heflin stopped, and it sounds a very practical reason for stopping it, because the press were on it. And he got wind of this in his office, and he immediately <coughs> set about stopping and did so, and it was stopped. Now, Mr. Gibbons didn't tell us when the teacher came home from his leave. I don't know if it coincided, but Colonel Heflin stopped it as of a Saturday, the Saturday in which the second batch were due to arrive in. So I don't know if it was the same day that the Easter came home from his leave. Be that as it may, I suggest maybe both of them sought to stop it. But the point of it is that it was a, a gesture, not by the government, but by Mr. Gibbons, I should say, according to him, of sympathy with the Bogsiders, which was thought inappropriate by the Taoiseach. May I go on? May we take it then that your purpose or idea in enrolling a number of citizens or ordering the enrolment of a number of citizens in Derry in the FCA and their training in a Donegal fort was simply a gesture of sympathy to the people in the Bogside? Yes, I think that would be accurate. And did you not intend it to have any practical effect in assistance or help to the people of the Bogside? I don't think that it could be seriously contended that a week's training of nine men by the FCA could have any serious effect on the general outcome of an outburst of civil disorder. Question. Firstly, the training was done by the army, wasn't it? Well, yes. Then you ordered it, it was to continue, and it was only when the Taoiseach came back from his holidays that it stopped. Isn't that right? That's right. So we're not talking of the training of nine men by the FCA, we are talking about an order made by you for the courses of training at a fort in Donegal by the army. Did you think that this was going to be of no practical assistance to the citizens of Delhi? That's the new answer. I would look upon it at that time as a pilot operation. Don't, matter what, don't mind what sort of an operation was it, did you think it was going to be of any practical assistance to the citizens of Derry? 
I have said that my principal objective in ordering this action was to indicate to the people of Delhi that they had our sympathy and that the refusal of a request of this kind from us could be misunderstood by them as a total rejection of their plight. Now would you answer the question I asked you? <coughs> I have attempted to do so. Did you think it was going to be of any practical assistance to the citizens of Delhi? Answer, to the, extent, to the extent that nine men from Delhi would have one week's military training. You did think it was going to be of some practical assistance. Well, one can assess the value of the existence amongst the bogsiders of nine men with one week's military training as one likes. May we take it, Mr. Gibbons, that it was going to be of some practical assistance. I would think that the knowledge imparted to such a small number of men over such a short period of time would have a very limited military application, if any at all. What I want to know from you is, at that time when you ordered this, did you think it was going to be of any practical assistance to the people of Derry? <coughs> I would have thought that the most valuable part of its assistance to the people of Derry would be this, that the people of Derry would not feel totally abandoned. So it was just strictly a gesture as far as you were concerned and wasn't intended to be of any practical assistance. And it was also intended to be subject to the scrutiny of the Taoiseach when he became available. But gentlemen, what manner of man is this? Who takes in citizens of death at a time of not immediate turmoil, but threatened turmoil, threatened injury and loss of life <coughs> in Delhi and other parts of Northern Ireland, Immediately after, men have been killed in Belfast and in Armagh. Immediately after, the most fearful onslaught between two religious communities has taken place. Takes in a group from one of those religious communities, without the knowledge of the head of the government, and gives them training. And his answer is, I, it was intended to be subject to the scrutiny of the Taoiseach when he became available. I don't know how long the Taoiseach was staying away, but I would have thought either he could be communicated with, or else, since he came back within a week apparently, and presumably this was a fact that could have been ascertained, that Mr. Gibbons would not have embarked on this program without the Taoiseach's knowledge, without his consent far more practical aspect that the thing went directly through the army and that Mr. Gibbons was acting then as I suggest he acted throughout in pursuance of the knowledge that all help all help was if necessary and if the government so decided to be given to the beleaguered community in Northern Ireland that didn't stop the thought of arms and ammunition. That, that's the meaning of Fort Dunree. As has been said before, as indicative in Mr. Finlay's questions that I've been reading to you here, what's the point of teaching a man how to shoot if you don't give him something to shoot with? If and when the need, the disaster arises, call it doomsday situation or whatever but that's the meaning of it gentlemen to my mind it's not much of a gesture of sympathy to take nine men from their jobs in Derry and bring them to Fort Dunree for a holiday training for these soldiers but it is a gesture of sympathy to teach them to be soldiers and to give them the weapons of soldiers if and when the need arises in respect to this gentleman to a further portion of evidence given by Mr. Gibbons when he was being cross-examined by me. This bears on what was said in Doyle Aaron, where you recall, perhaps it's in general, but I'd like you to <coughs> learn it in detail, because as you'll be aware from what I've already said to you, and no doubt has been apparent to you, having regard to the conflict between Mr. Colonel Hefferon and Mr. Gibbons, to a limited degree in recounting conversations between Mr. Hoy and Mr. Gibbons, that Mr. Gibbons' credibility, his credit, is a very important thing in this case. 
as I will submit to you in due time, unless you accept Mr. Gibbons's evidence as a whole, with all the infirmities that I shall point to in it, the prosecution fails. At a later stage in the cross-examination, Mr. Gibbons was asked by me, do you have any expression of loyalty, formal, formal expression of loyalty? Not that I recall. Surely the answer must be no, Mr. Gibbons. Remember now, Mr. Gibbons was appointed a minister for the first time in July 1969, not that long ago. The acceptance of the seal from the President to me means that you undertake to carry out the duties, the acceptance of the seal from the President means that you undertake to carry out the duties of your office faithfully and well. And as a parliamentarian, you have duties there as well. Yes. To your constituents and to the public at large. Yes. As a minister, you have a duty in Parliament, amongst other things, to give the information that is requested of you. Yes. And to give it within the limits of national security as fully and fairly as possible. Yes. Mention has been made of the training of people from the bog side in 1969 in September. You say for one week, that's so. Yes. Could it have been for two weeks? I don't think so. There was a further batch coming that was called off. <clears throat> well, they were all men, I take it. Yes. Grown men. Yes. And nine originally. Yes. All residents in Northern Ireland are technically at least citizens of the United Kingdom. Yes. And all civilians. Yes. <coughs> Did you at any time deny that civilians were being trained by the army in County Donegal? I don't recall having done so. And I put the occasion to him then, and I quoted from the Doyle report. <coughs> On a, on a debate for the nomination of members of the government. Now, bear in mind, this was on the 8th May, 1970. The debate had been going on. The alleged arms conspiracy was public knowledge, and Mr. Hawhey had been dismissed, as Mr. Blaney had been dismissed from office on the 5th of May. It's a rather important fact because the position, the name, the credit, perhaps other things as well, of a former colleague were very much in question. But Deputy Ryan stated, it is quite clear that evidence has been given to the Taoiseach which links certain names with such activities not related only to the attempted importation of arms from Vienna, but related also to training which was given in at least one army camp to civilians in the use of arms. And you interrupted Mr. Ryan to say, that is not true. That's right. They weren't civilians. They were fully attested members of the FCA. I'll come to that in a moment. You intervened as was course was right and proper in the debate expressly because of allegations of your own implication. Yes. And in the course of that, in your short speech, did you say there was some reference to the training of citizens in Donegal. Quote, I want to point out the position of the Defence Forces in this regard. The Defence Forces train only members of their own ranks, whether they be FCA or Army or Naval personnel. That is the extent of their training. This story first got currency in the Protestant Telegraph. It is time that stories of that kind ceased. I have nothing further to say on the matter. There were certain matters that I wanted to clarify. Clarify for the House at this stage, and I have done so. Clarify Mr. Ryan's allegation that civilians had been trained in a camp in Donegal by the army. It was clarified by saying, no, there were no civilians, army and FCA only. In the knowledge that the minister had, perhaps other people suspected, that civilians from Derry had been taken out of their civilian garb for five or six days and made members of the FCA. <coughs> Was that clarification or clouding? That's what the minister said. Is he someone upon whose word or recollection you should be asked to rely? Or is he someone about whose accuracy, to put it mildly, of what he says he remembers is at best doubtful, and perhaps, at worst, quite unacceptable. <coughs> it goes on. Was that telling the whole truth, Mr. Gibbons? 
This was a declaration that the people that were trained in Dunree were members of the SCA and had been duly attested as such. Did you think it would not have been perhaps telling the whole truth to have stated that civilians of Derry, citizens of another state, were enrolled in the second line of the Defence Forces for the express purpose of training them so that they could go back to Derry and defend themselves? I would like to remind the Court, sir, that a great many of our permanent Defence Forces come in fact from the six counties and always have done. Do any members of Enforce Accustomed or Tule come from the six counties? I was given to understand that occasionally people in the border areas, while living in the six counties, do in fact join the FCA. It's not common, but it has occurred. Uh, when I turned up an instance when I spoke to Colonel Heffern about this, his view was that armies recruit, as we were recruiting at that time, and if a person presents himself as a recruit, he's not on duty quizzed as to where his origins are. In the case of the permanent defence forces, it is quite a normal thing for six county people to join our army. I'm not questioning that, Mr. Gibbons. I'm, you are questioning me on the accuracy of the statement I made in the door. Certainly I am. Not that it isn't technically accurate, but it doesn't tell the whole truth and is deliberately misleading. The statement to which it replies is not only deliberately misleading, but is actually malicious. What statement? Mr. Ryan's statement? Yes. Mr. Ryan's statement was purely that the army was training civilians. And my reply is that these men were attested in the FCA. That is not his reply. That's the whole point, gentlemen that he was misleading the House, his colleagues, and the country. And this witness, you were asked to act on his evidence. There were more questions, but I don't think it's necessary to, to weary you with them, except until one gets a bit further on. He says, I'm suggesting that what De Deputy Ryan said was inaccurate. In the sense that it wasn't true they were civilians, they became soldiers for seven days, yes. And then reverted to being civilians after that. I too spent my time as a soldier for seven days. Not, I presume, for some particular subterfuge, no. Well then, would you accept that in this instance you had told the truth, but not the whole truth? This is a Doyle debate. That's the answer I got, John. This is a Doyle debate. You lie, tell half-truths, or do what you like in the Doyle, where you have your responsibility to your colleagues, to your fellow parliamentarians, to your constituents, and to your country, in a matter of high importance, of great gravity, where your colleagues or your former colleagues are being assailed on all sides, being denounced within the privileged walls of Parliament, your answer, when you could have done, said something which would have given them some succor, which would have given some instance of an overt act on the part of the minister responsible, which would give credence to Captain Kelly, who had been mentioned in the, in the debate, give credence to the idea that what he was doing was an official operation. Because if you train people to use guns, you better give them at some stage if the need arises. In that instance, the answer of the minister when he comes months later to be questioned and defend his actions and defend his statement of evidence, to defend its truth, is to say, this is the dollar. Other people, gentlemen, in other lands have found that you may say what you like outside the door, or do what you like outside the door, or the parliament, but there you try to tell the truth. I better perhaps finish the particular reference. Is that your answer, Mr. Gibbons? One is not bound to tell the truth in a Doyle debate. This was a Doyle debate in which Deputy Ryan and his colleagues were seeking to demolish the government and the government party. And the judge then suggested that I pass on the topic. And that I question again. Is that your answer, Mr. Gibbons? One is not bound to tell the truth in a Doyle debate. This was a Doyle debate in which Deputy Ryan and his colleagues were seeking to demolish the government and the government party. Maybe that's the philosophy. Maybe it's the philosophy of others. It doesn't appeal as establishing one as a witness upon whose recollection or accuracy one should rely. So much, gentlemen, for Fort Dunreen. Since I am at the Doyle debates, 
I think I might conclude the reference that I want to make in regard to it because you'll recall Mr. Gibbons' evidence in regard to what he knew of Captain Kelly's activities. Now this is clear, clear beyond peradventure, that he knew about the abortive shipment in the city of Dublin, from Antwerp to Dublin. Perhaps we'd quote his exact words to demonstrate that he agreed that he knew. You were also referred in part to what you had to say with regard to your knowledge, with regard to attempts to import arms, and you stated here yesterday and today in detail the information you had from Captain Kelly as a result of the discussion you had had him with him at the end of March. Yes. In which you learned of an express attempt to import arms and the failure, for whatever reason it doesn't matter. Yes. And that the arms were still in Belgium. Yes. That you ascertained the possible port of departure was Antwerp. Yes. That they had arrived in a vessel called the City of Dublin. I heard nothing about the City of Dublin. Did you not? I beg your pardon. That they had arrived at the port of Dublin and that he and one or more others had gone to the docks at night. I didn't learn that he had actually gone, as I told the court earlier. He indicated that he knew the operation and was in some way involved. Well, we can turn up your exact words, Mr. Gibbons, but my impression was, I beg your pardon, I shouldn't have said that. What I understood you to say was that he and somebody else had gone to the docks at night and that when they saw the army there in strength, he said that they disappeared into the shadows at your instigation. By that I mean that Mr. Gibbons suggested the answer to him, you disappeared into the shadows. They must have been there. At my instigation, no, not, not that they did it, but you produced the phrase, yes. If they disappeared into the shadows, they must have been down at the docks, yes. That is Captain Kelly and somebody else. Not necessarily Captain Kelly, but the people who went, whoever they were. Very well. This was a specific example of an abortive attempt to import arms, yes. With the knowledge that it would be renewed, possibly starting from the port of Trieste, yes. But without any further knowledge as to where it might be delivered, yes. I presume you would have presumed Dublin again. No, I made no such presumption. In fact, the only presumption that I made was that considerable difficulty would be encountered in reclaiming these lost weapons while consignment of goods. I'm not quarrelling with your words. A difficulty in regaining them, although it was known that they hadn't been shipped aboard at Antwerp. Yes, and that they were in Belgium. Yes. Well, now that was a concrete example. Yes. Did you ever, to come to the point immediately, did you tell Lloyd Erwin that you had no concrete example? I don't think so. I quote to you from the Doyle report and ask you to accept whether or not it is true that this is what you said on the same date. <coughs> I wish emphatically to deny any such knowledge or consent. I was aware through the Director of Intelligence that attempts to smuggle arms were a constant danger and these attempts were kept under surveillance at all times. I wish to say I discharged my duties to the full extent of my knowledge of the situation. I want to say also that in recent times I formed the opinion that Captain Kelly was be becoming unsuitable for the type of work that he was employed in. I, went, I want to say that certain suspicions were forming in my mind. Certain suspicions were forming in the mind of the minister who had been told by Captain Kelly that he had been involved in an attempted importation that had aborted and he was going to do it again. I was kept informed by the Director of Intelligence, but nothing concrete emerged. His answer before I quoted him that was, well now that was a concrete example, yes. In the Doyle, nothing concrete emerged. <coughs> now if Mr. Gibbon had been prepared to say in the Doyle, as I suggest it is the truth, that he knew all about it, and that he approved of it, but he wanted it kept secret for obvious reasons. It would have inured greatly to the benefit of his dismissed colleagues. Far from saying that, he expressly said that he had suspicions about Captain Kelly, but nothing concrete emerged. I suggest, gentlemen, it displays, for whatever reason, I need not attempt to ascribe one. But for whatever reason, I think Captain Kelly ascribed one that Mr. Gibbons was realising that the balloon was up, the publicity had come, was trying to wriggle out his own complicity. That whatever the reason, Mr. Gibbons was lacking in candour, shall I say. I can 
have, perhaps will use, harsher expressions, but sufficient to say that. He lacked frankness. He did not tell, oh, let's be plain about it, he told a lie. A plain lie, there's no other way of describing this gentleman. He agreed a concrete example. What more concrete example did he want? Did he want to see the arms down at the docks? To be told by a serving officer of experience in a particularly onerous position as a uh, working in, in military intelligence on a particular assignment, he had been told by him that they had tried to get in arms and that they were going to do it again. And he had no concrete example. Why? Because of course he said in his own skin. If there were a concrete example such as this, and if it were wrong, or if somebody thought it was wrong, somebody, perhaps the head of the government or somebody else, or Doyle Aaron thought it was wrong, or the opposition parties thought it was wrong, then, of course, I suppose he must defend himself. But not the extent of denouncing Captain Kelly unfairly, and by implication, perhaps denouncing some of his cousins, or former cousins. That gentleman is my... I quoted this, but perhaps I want to be fair and complete, gentlemen. I want to tell you everything and not concede witnesses or evidence. I better read on as to what Mr. Gibbons said in regard to this. Mr. Gibbons, how can you reconcile that what, with that with what you have said today and yesterday about your knowledge of what Captain Kelly told you? Answer, no arms had in fact arrived in this country. No illegal gun had, as far as I know, had arrived in this country. The attempt that had been made, the only attempt that I know of that had been made, had been aborted. Now, it seemed to me that since the comparatively simple-looking job of shipping goods from Antwerp to Dublin had been so aborted, that the transfer of all these goods across the continent of Europe to the Adriatic, and the subsequent arrangements for their shipment to Dublin, would allow me ample time to have Captain Kelly removed from the army inadequate time. That's not the point. The point is not just that Captain Kelly is involved, but that an arms ship shipment is planned. That's concrete. Is that your answer, Mr. Gibbons? This was giving you time since this consignment of arms was going to go through. Yes, I've already told the court, I think on more than one occasion, that the way in which I wish Captain Kelly to leave the army was in a state of mind that would leave him without any sense of dreams. Mr. Gibbons, my questions are not directed with anything to do with Captain Kelly, but to do with your statements in the door as compared to your statements in this court. There are questions that your Lord said going to your credit. You understand that? Yes then Captain Kelly's removal or resignation from the army is quite irrelevant. I want you to, to know that you accept that you told the Doyle one thing, that nothing concrete had emerged, and you have told us here something else. Yes. I would submit, sir, that what I said in the Doyle is essentially true, that the expression, nothing concrete had emerged, means that no gun had been illegally imported, and this was in fact the case. How do you compare that with what you said? And the judge intervened. An end of the matter. That was an end. Now, perhaps I've burdened and wearied you, gentlemen, by uh, this type of reference. It's because I regard the evidence of Mr. Gibbons of such importance uh, that it, and I will deal with some of it so far as it affects my time, that it's of importance to me that you look upon it in the light of a total estimation of the individual giving it, and that I should remind you, where, as I believe I did do so, he was demonstrated to have told different stories on different occasions. People who do are generally unreliable in their recollection. I don't have to put it further than that, but I do suggest to you that there is ample <coughs> evidence that this is the case with Mr. Gibbons, that he is unreliable in his recollection. I add to that the fact that in cross-examination, when asked about a directive of the 6th of February 1970, this was the directive issued verbally originally to, Mr. to the Chief of Staff by Mr. Gibbons in regard to the preparation of plans and the provision of surplus arms. He was asked about that by a number of people, but in particular he was asked by me if he had seen it the writing into which it had been reduced by somebody in the Chief of Staff's uh, office, if he had seen that since the previous trial, it would be pointless and indeed improper of me to tell you, gentlemen, why I wanted to know that. Mr. Gibbons said, yes, 
And I then asked him, with whom had he seen it? Who'd been with him when he saw it? And on this, stated by him to be a matter of state security, he claimed, and of course his lordship allowed him privilege. <coughs> now, it's improper to go into the que to questioning in regard to the claim of privilege, and I don't do so. I merely say, why did he claim privilege? What possible difference can it matter to know who was with him when he read it? How could it affect? <coughs> Let's assume any number of people that might have been there. An army officer, the chief of staff, the attorney general, the minister for justice, the Taoiseach. Who? What does it matter? How could that affect state security? He claimed it, it did, and we're bound by that. But it tends to excite some suspicion. What's behind all this? Why was the claim made? There were other matters Mr. Gibbons dealt with, of government decision, which necessarily involved a conclusion by anyone listening to him, that this had come uh, from a discussion at cabinet level, no claim of privilege made, <coughs> nothing at all, everything is free and open. But when it came to this one thing, now I don't know why, gentlemen. I can't suggest a reason other than there was something to conceal. Something that lies somewhere behind or underneath this prosecution. But it, again, and I use it for this purpose, would excite suspicion about the <coughs> veracity or the reliability of the person who gave the evidence. And gentlemen, it was this witness who was maintained as a witness for the prosecution and Colonel Heffron was discarded. That, I think, gentlemen, is sufficient in respect of the observations that I would make about the prosecution as a whole and the reliability of a particular witness in regard to the comparison between his evidence here and what he stated in Doyle Aaron. On a day of great importance, there is another matter, perhaps I might advert to it now before dealing with going into the, the offence itself. Perhaps I could do I'll do it tomorrow. We know, according to Mr. Gibbons, that when Captain Kelly came to him first, he knew of his work. We know either the first or the second time, according to Mr. Gibbons, he knew of his involvement in trying to get arms. We know by the end of March he knew of the abortive shipment. I'm taking it now on his recollection, even though, as he says himself, he's not great in details. On his recollection, he knew that a serving officer, a man for whom he bore ultimate responsibility to Parliament and country, was involved in what he says was an illegal operation, what he, Mr. Gibbons, says. That he had done something that would warrant court-martial and presumably dismissal, whatever the expression is, with disgrace the armed forces. He knew this, and what was his action? Initially, to try to get him a job within the civil service, on the same pay structure as he enjoyed as a captain in the army. The job that he asked that came up was a suggestion from Mr. Hawhey, a pig smuggling preventive was an, an excellent suggestion by Mr. Hawhey. If Mr. Gibbons' account in respect of this is disregarded, he says that he wanted him out of the army and he wanted him a job because he didn't want him to have a sense of grievance. In fact, he took no step, whatever, to get him out of the army other than to ask Mr. Hawhey could he suggest a job. The job Mr. Hawhey suggested was that of the pig smuggling preventive officer, entirely appropriate as a cover 
for an intelligence agent working in the border area. The other suggestion from Mr. Gibbons was work in the Ordnance Survey, another suitable cover. And yet, Mr. Gibbons says that he wanted him out of the army so that he wouldn't have a sense of grievance. Yet when the time came, when the balloon went up, when everybody knew, when the special branch were investigating and talking to revenue commissioners and the like, when that happened, and Captain Kelly, indignant with the manner, and rightly indignant, the manner in which he'd been treated by his superiors, the, ma the manner in which he'd been let down by Mr. Gibbons, came to, sent in his resignation, and Mr. Gibbons sent for him, why? Why do ministers of defence send for captains in the army when they resign? Sent for him and asked him not to go, to stay on, with the balloon up, with the dogs barking about it in the street. Mr. Gibbons wanted him to stay on in order to attempt to preserve secrecy. Was secrecy going to be preserved but for the debate that suddenly sprang on the public at large? Or was, were the dogs barking it sufficiently well so that everyone would know? What was the purpose of keeping Captain Kelly on except to keep him quiet about Mr. Gibbons? It all begins to fall into place a bit. I refer to this as part of the total estimate that you must have of this vital witness. He had initially, according to Mr. Hohing and according to Captain Kelly and according to Colonel Heffron, when the first, and I'm sorry Mr. Hoyt didn't know about the first resignation, but according to Colonel Heffron and according to Captain Kelly, when the first resignation came up, that due to expire on the 13th of February, which coincided with the 21st, 21 years, and therefore gave Captain Kelly a somewhat better pension. When it first came up, it was Mr. Gibbons who said, no, he needn't leave. This man involved in trying to help the people in the north, and trying to get arms ready and available for him. He needn't leave. No although he wanted to leave, because he felt he had a dual capacity and he would be better off out of the army. <coughs> he next seeks to get him a job. He goes to Mr. Hoy. He learns about the abortive shipment. He keeps pursuing the idea of a job. He comes up with a suggestion himself. He sees him three nights running at the end of April when the balloon has gone up. And finally, he asks him to stay on. Is this consistent, gentlemen, with a statement by a man that he knew nothing of it? He gave no countenance to it. He gave no authority, agreement, or approval. And in fact, he totally disapproved of it. He was dead against it and would never approve of it. Are these things consistent, gentlemen? I suggest they are inconsistent on their faith. They are established as facts, many of them from Mr. Gibbon's own mouth, if you can rely on insofar as one can do so. And that on those facts, gentlemen, you must look to this, the, if not the principal, <coughs> one of the principal witnesses for the prosecution. You must look upon his evidence with great doubt. I suggest you do, gentlemen, and that in doing so, you, it will give you an opportunity more readily to determine what and remember this <coughs> as an important factor. A series of isolated instances assume and loom large, assume great importance when they are told out day after day, slowly in court, every word paused, every different nuance attempted to be got out of it. That many of the conversations that you have heard described are momentary things in the passing day on a busy day. People's recollections will fail. Matters of importance of what the, the substance of the conversation, that may well get home. But when one is coming to deal, and I will deal with the conversations with Mr. Gibbons, that Mr. Gibbons had with Mr. Hoy, in as far as both of them go, you must realize that no one can be certain of exact words unless perhaps an unusual phrase or something of that kind is used. <coughs> but generally speaking, it's the substance of the conversation that one gets. In regard to the witness whom I have been attacking, gentlemen, as I hope I've made it clear I have been attacking, in regard to him, 
I suggest that you approach his evidence in the light that I have shown, conscious as well, of course, that he is, he is a minister of state, that he is a member of Doyleon, that he is the man that you saw. But in the knowledge that these other things that I have referred to did happen, and that he was involved in them, and he did say these things on other occasions, and doing so, that you will assess his evidence accordingly. I think it might be convenient for me to break here now. Mr. McCarthy, we'll take up matters at 11 o'clock in the morning. Barrister Neil McCarthy addressing the jury on behalf of Charles Hawhey on the afternoon of October 20th, 1970. As you know, the jury retired soon afterwards and decided to acquit Mr. Hawhey as well as the other four accused. As we've said, those recordings were discovered by Michael Heaney in the course of his doctoral research, but you may know of other tapes of the trial somewhere. If you do, please contact us at documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Thank you for listening.